I initially kind of understood the narrative to be something like evangelicals were radicalized um, politically or they voted for Donald Trump because they were just so afraid. Historically, I came to see that um, in many ways we had to flip the script, that it wasn't fear that engendered militancy, but in many cases, the militancy was there first. And then Mm -hmm. leaders actively stoked fear in the hearts of their followers in order to justify and consolidate their own power. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. I'm Susie Lahoud here with Jonathan Walton and Cy Hoekstra. Our guest today is Kristen Covez Dumay, a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC News, Religious News Service, Christianity Today, and been interviewed by NPR, CBS, the BBC, and all these other wonderful places. Her most recent book is the New York Times best-selling Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, which is now available in paperback. Now, we talked to her about that book, the history of white evangelical patriarchal politics, what it was like writing the book, how Christian patriarchy works differently for BIPOC and disabled men, the book she's writing now on evangelical femininity called Live, Laugh, Love, and a whole lot more. Sit down, relax, and enjoy this episode. Just a reminder, if you like this show, the best way to support us is to go to ktfpress.com and subscribe to our blog there. That gets you our weekly newsletter with resources to help you leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God, bonus episodes of this show, and writing from the three of us. It also supports other projects like our future book projects. If you're not in a position to do that, then go ahead and hit the subscribe button on this podcast. Follow us at KTF Press on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Tell your friends about us. Give this show a rate and review. Any of those things, all of those things are extremely helpful to us, and we really appreciate it. Also, remember to send in your questions, written or in voice memo form, to shakethedust at ktfpress.com. We're going to have a couple episodes in future where we're sort of digesting some of the stuff that we've been hearing from all these incredible guests, and uh, we would love to hear your questions so we can talk about them and talk about the stuff that you want to hear. Thank you so much. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. Here's our interview with Professor Dumay. Professor Dumay, thank you so much for joining us on Shake the Dust today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, we're just so grateful to have you on. And just to give listeners a sense of your book, Jesus and John Wayne, and kind of what it's about, um, you trace the history of white evangelical conceptions of masculinity from the 40s up until the present day. And your conclusion is that Donald Trump was a logical choice for a lot of evangelicals to elect as president because he represented and embodied that picture of masculinity. And you start in the mid-20th century and write, it was in the 1940s and 1950s that a potent mix of patriarchal, quote, gender traditionalism, militarism, and Christian nationalism coalesced to form the basis of a revitalized evangelical identity. With Billy Graham at the vanguard, evangelicals believed that they had a special role to play in keeping America Christian, American families strong, and the nation secure. The assertion of masculine power would accomplish all these goals. So that's just one sort of powerful quote summing up what you talk about. 
And then you describe how these ideas were passed on for the next 80 years and how they were shaped by important political and social movements. Um, would you say that that's a fair sort of 30,000 foot view of the book? And is there more that, that you would add to that just to, again, give our listeners kind of a, a bite-sized piece of what this is all about? No, that's, I mean, that's a great choice. That's a great quote. I think that that does get right to the heart of, of the history here. Uh, you know, I think one thing I would I would add on top of that is one of the things that Jesus and John Wayne does that I think is different from a lot of previous histories of evangelicalism is that it takes popular culture very seriously. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of, uh, you know, studies of evangelicalism up to this time have kind of focused on intellectual history, on theology, on what was going on in elite institutions. And, and this is much more so focused on ordinary evangelicals and on evangelical consumer culture. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why this book is resonating so widely with uh, ordinary evangelicals, because you know, I hear from so many who just say, you know, some version of this is a story of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that resonance um, was not lost on me either. Um, I thoroughly felt like I'm reading about how I was discipled in college. And so as you write in the introduction to your book, um, you write about growing up in Sioux City, Iowa, and then attending Dort College, and then frequently participating in worship services, um, where Trump gave his like famous or infamous speech about shooting someone on Fifth Avenue to to the delight of the people present, just like clapping. And then we come to find out they voted overwhelmingly for him in 2016. And as we know now, they didn't much depart from that in, in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you you also write that in 2016 came around, you no longer recognize yourself as evangelical. Um, mm-hmm. And like, so this podcast is about, it's called Shake the Dust, about leaving things, about stepping out and going somewhere new because of Jesus and to be closer to him. So what changed for you mm-hmm. in the midst of these things? Yeah, you know, I think that I always had kind of one foot in and one foot out of evangelicalism because I did grow up in this uh, subculture, an ethnic and religious subculture. I actually grew up in Sioux Center, not Sioux City. So Sioux Center is a small town about an I'm hour so up the road. <laughs> so, so I need to clarify <laughs> that. But uh, and and you know, it was this Dutch immigrant community. My mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. Uh, my dad, an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church, a theology professor, and so my religious identity was reformed, confessionally reformed, Dutch reformed, and very much over against American evangelicalism. Uh, That said, looking back, I can see how deeply I was also shaped by popular evangelicalism because there was one uh, bookstore in my small town and it was a Christian bookstore. That's where you got all the birthday gifts. And uh, I grew up listening to Christian music and only Christian music. Top 40 was sinful. And, uh, <laughs> you know, went to youth group and uh, you, it was immersed in this kind of popular evangelical culture without even realizing it. And so, so again, kind of one foot in, one foot out. My identity wasn't wholly evangelical, um, but I, I, I was shaped by, by the, the cultural values. And then when it came to 2016, yeah, I was, I was watching uh, Donald Trump visit my alma mater, um, my um, you know, Dort College. I grew up just a few blocks from the college. That's where my dad taught. 
Uh, and and I was watching this play out, and you know, that's where he gave his infamous "I could shoot anyone on Fifth Avenue with not lose any supporters" speech. Um, that was also one of the first times that he he expressly appealed to uh, evangelical voters. And I remember thinking at the time, he doesn't know where he is. Um, <laughs> Dort's not evangelical. Dort's not Liberty University. You know, he didn't, his team didn't do their research. Huh. Uh, you know, we're not who, who they think we, who, who they think we are here. Um, and, and then I was, I was looking at the live stream. I was trying to see faces when people would turn around in the crowd and say, you know, who is there? Cause I heard the cheering and I heard, I thought these are, you know, the, I didn't recognize anybody there. Um, I, I mean that quite literally. I didn't. I didn't recognize people I knew in the crowds. So I was like, "Who even are these people?" And so I think even then, I wanted to tell myself, uh, you know, they 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 came in from from outside of Sioux Center. These are not. You know, I don't know uh, where these people are coming yeah, from. Yeah. These aren't my people. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, they were. And we saw, you know, Sioux County, Iowa voted um, in great numbers for Donald Trump, uh, higher than the the infamous eighty one percent. I think it came in around eighty six percent in my county. Uh, and so, yeah, I had to kind of reckon with. Um, uh, you know what? Who am I? Uh, and what has become of of my tradition? And I came to see how this evangelical culture really had permeated uh, my own theological tradition and my own community in many ways. And I I could see that happening as a historian, and I could see that happening in real life as well. So I, I guess with that background in mind, I, I we would also really like to know, like, was this book? difficult for you to write because you're, you're writing about, you know, a lot of oppressive things that have happened yeah. in what may not have been exactly your tradition, but it was, you know, in the culture that you're a part of. Yeah. And I mean, some of the stuff you read about is honestly quite dark <laughs> and, yes. um, yeah. and, and, you know, I, it, especially with you, you're sitting there doing all the research, reading through all this stuff, not really having any idea whether or not your, your book is going to be successful or have, have the impact that it has had. How was that for you? Was that hard? You know, I gave very little thought to the impact of this book as I was writing it. I was just really, really set on on getting things right. I was just set on telling mm-hmm. this story. Uh, when I thought of the reception of the book, I, I actually rarely thought about positive reception. I was just thinking about how many people would hate me and how bad <laughs> it would get. Uh, so, huh. so I really didn't. Um, uh, it, it caught me a bit off guard, uh, the popular reception of the book, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard to write. It was, uh, on the one hand, I mean, I'd been, I'd started this research more than 15 years earlier and then set it aside. So what that means is I, I had kept my eye on this community and on some of these tendencies for a long time. And I, I'd watched what was happening in terms of this militant masculinity, in terms of sexual abuse in evangelical spaces, in terms of cover-ups, long before Me Too and Church Too were a thing. You know, this was all in the, the blogosphere, if you cared to look. And so I was, um, in some ways, the writing process itself was cathartic to to put this all into words um, and and to um, to really hold evangelicals to account. It um, it honestly felt very empowering to write uh, this narrative. 
And um, which doesn't mean it also didn't have its 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 difficult uh, stretches. Really, the research and writing of that final chapter, Evangelical Mulligans: A History, yeah. uh, where it's you know really uh, reveals the the extent of sexual abuse and cover ups within evangelicalism. That was incredibly hard. It was hard to mm-hmm. research, um, and then I really, really wanted to make sure I got the stories right, and that I dealt with the survivors' uh, accounts with respect and integrity, and and that I, I I I could use them for the purposes that they would want them used for. And so I felt a real burden with that chapter. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the stories there are devastating. And so every time I edited it. I I hated it. I really, really, I, you know, I'd, I'd get all the way through the book almost on a read, on an edit, and then think yeah. I just like run up against that chapter. And it was, I hated it. Um, I asked my editor more than once, does this really have to be in here? And each time he's like, yep, it does. Um, but I will also say I had three research assistants who helped me research this book. And they were phenomenal student researchers, um, students at Calvin uh, from from within this cu- culture, uh, one in particular from very deep within this culture. Mm. And they were amazing. And so I think we were a community for each other. And mm. we really helped each other kind of through some of this really dark research. Wow. Yeah, I, I have to say, um, reading this book, I was sharing this with with Shai, with Sai and Jonathan earlier. Um, I, so when I first started it, one, I was just so impressed by the massive amount of work that went into it, and I just love the way that you get into the history and unmask these these mechanisms of, like you said, the popular culture and all of that. I had just never seen anything like that so clearly laid out, and so it was really clarifying for me as a woman who also grew up in, in evangelicalism, but then I, you know, put the book down, went to bed and dreamt about your book the entire night. Oh, no. And it wasn't exactly nightmares, but I woke up and I realized um, I'm really angry. Yes. And and I'm angry because I think the thing that, that, you know, most breaks my heart and I think should most break our hearts is when we as Christians, as people who claim to be the people of God, who claim to follow Christ, deface the image of God in other people. And, and growing up under that, I mean, I'm angry for my, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old self Mm -hmm. praying because I so desperately love Jesus. You know, God, you are the most important thing in my life. I just need to know, am I really a second class citizen in your kingdom? You know, Mm -hmm. do I really have a voice? Um, Mm -hmm. How do I exist in my own body without shame? And, and so, again, what you write is just so clear and so powerful and just exposes so much that, that needs to be exposed. And um, so, one, I mean, just thank you for, for all of the work and, and even emotional labor that, that went into that. Um, but to kind of pivot a little bit to sort of a, a broader take more than just kind of my own personal reaction, we, we talk on this show about leaving colonized faith. And part of that exercise is trying to identify the ways that our beliefs uphold and perpetuate the use of power to oppress people. Yeah. So can you give our listeners an overview of some of the ways that evangelicals have used this vision of masculinity that you trace in your book to consolidate and wield not just power interpersonally, but political power? Yeah, you know, ultimately this this is a book about power. That's what it comes down to and it, mm-hmm. it the the relationship between Christianity and power. Yeah. And in the story that I tell, it's um 
by by elevating this model of warrior masculinity as the ideal of Christian manhood. It ends up not just shaping visions of what it is to be a Christian man, although very much that, but it ends up also shaping ideas of of Christianity itself, Uh, what it is to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. It ends up distorting images of Jesus, Jesus of the Gospels. You can see this happening uh, in, in somebody like Mark Driscoll, right, who describes Jesus as this this uh, warrior with tattoos down his leg, uh, charging into battle on uh, on horseback, wielding a bloody sword, setting off to slay his enemies, and you know that is just so um, counter uh, biblical in terms of the Jesus of the Gospels, who uh, divests himself of power of power, and that's what's so radical about Christianity. And we have all these teachings of love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, uh, turn the other cheek. We have the Beatitudes. We have the fruit of the spirit. You know, this is really what is so countercultural about Christianity. And instead, with this warrior masculinity uh, and and the kind of militant faith that is is built around it, it really, that's the corruption of the faith that I, I am talking about in the subtitle. So um, it also really um, requires and perpetuates an us versus them mentality, mm-hmm. right? Where um, this this kind of language of of uh, war, uh, it it requires enemies. So somebody like uh, mm-hmm. John Eldridge writes, you know, God is a warrior God, and men are made in His image. Every man needs a battle to fight. Well, if you need a battle, you need enemies. And so you're constantly on the lookout for enemies or you're creating enemies. Right. And um, you know, I think one of the big um, kind of aha moments for me as I was researching this book was I initially kind of understood the, the narrative to be something like um, what I was hearing a lot of pundits uh, describe and evangelicals themselves. The evangelicals were radicalized um, politically or they voted for Donald Trump because they were just so afraid. You know, they were afraid of demographic con- decline, of you know, their religious liberties, and there's this whole list, always a list. <laughs> and and h- historically, I came to see that um, um, in many ways we had to flip the script, that it wasn't fear that in- engendered militancy, but in many cases, the militancy was there first. And then mm-hmm. leaders actively stoked fear in the hearts of their followers in order to justify and consolidate their own power. And once that clicked for me, it made so much sense of people like Jerry Falwell Sr., of people like Mark Driscoll. It made sense of those those fake ex-Muslim terrorists post 9-11. That was wild. That was on some other level. Yes, that was. was. (laughs) Just in case people like me who haven't heard of the fake ex-Muslim terrorists. Yeah, a quick quick overview. Yeah. Uh, this is it's such a bizarre story. And yeah. I first learned about these guys because they visited my college campus. Oh my gosh. And I write about that in, in this book. It was actually one of my colleagues, Doug Howard, a historian of the Ottoman Empire, who who raised some objections to uh, these guys who were, this was, so in the years after September 11, 
they there were a whole slew of of supposed ex-Muslim terrorists, so former terrorists who had converted to Christianity, and they were all over the place on the evangelical speaking circuit, uh, supported by institutions, organizations like Focus on the Family, CBN, the SBC, and uh, they were. Uh, just riling up audiences, warning them of the dangers of radical Islam, of how Muslims want to kill them, like very specifically wanting to kill not just Americans, but American Christians and American evangelicals and their families. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out all of these guys were frauds, like complete frauds. Uh, They were not former terrorists, some of them not even really former Muslims. And uh, and, I mean, that was bad enough. But what was what was really jarring was uh, when I came to see that these organizations knew that and right. continued to support these quote unquote ministries long after they knew that these guys were frauds. Oh man. gosh! <laughs> so, like full confession, like my master's degree is an in intellectual history of Jerry Falwell. Oh, and yeah, fun times. <laughs> um, and and then my second level research was a capstone on the connection between um, right-wing evangelicalism, particularly Jerry Falwell, and political violence in Latin America. So Uh, the militarization of these ideas. Yeah. So, um, and that is fully coupled with the racialization that comes along with this vision of masculinity, right? Yeah. And so um, particularly for me, the image that stands out in my mind is 1983, and you may have seen this or your researchers did, when Jesse Jackson was debating Jerry Falwell about apartheid in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly with the what happened in uh, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, um, just these, these arguments. And so race would come in and come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and specifically, Jerry Falwell said, um, I have been delivered from that. And that's mm-hmm. all he said about it. From racism? Uh, from yes, from racism, um, and and so I wonder um, as as your book gets into like you know breaking down evangelical visions of masculinity that are in many ways racialized, um, were there dimensions um, that came up as you were doing research concerning race, um, or and can you explain specifically like? Um, the racial aspects of the John Wayne Christianity? Because I think you did did an amazing job in the book of breaking that down. Yeah. So one of the first things I noticed when I started paying attention to the literature on evangelical masculinity, and this was back in the early 2000s, so it was the John Eldridge era. um, I mean, one of the things I noticed was how little uh, these authors actually quoted the scriptures. (laughs) And instead, (laughs) they preferred Hollywood heroes uh, mythical warriors, random cowboys and soldiers, and you know they love Teddy Roosevelt and you know John Wayne. And I, I didn't set out to write a book about race, right? I was focused on gender, uh, but if you know much about gender uh, and race, uh, sooner or later you're going to end up uh, doing both. <laughs> and um, and that's what I it dawned on me early on in this research. 
that, you know, evangelicals love their heroes, evangelical men, mm-hmm. especially, right? Mm-hmm. Again, Teddy Roosevelt, William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, uh, General MacArthur, General Patton, um, and, you know, John Wayne. And, and when I looked at, at this, this cast of characters, and this was repeated over and over and over again in these books, it was like a, uh, a, a, an industry. Um, and it really did border on plagiarism. It's just the same cast mm-hmm. of like a dozen characters that just get recycled in every single book and all of them go on to be bestsellers. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, I was sorely tempted back in the day to try my hand at one of these things. and I knew I could sell more books under a pseudonym <laughs> than I ever could as an academic. Um, yeah, it's just oh, so right. cookie cutter. <laughs> but I noticed that um, all of these heroes were white men. And then they, they weren't just white men, but in many cases, they were white men who asserted their, um, uh, their power and, uh, by subduing non-white populations. So, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is a great example mm-hmm. in terms of white masculinity and uh, American power, American empire and Spanish-American war, or even before that, you know, kind of recreating himself on the uh, Wild West. Um, and and then I, I, I noticed that John Wayne just kept popping up. And here we can see that so clearly. So John Wayne becomes an icon of conservative American masculinity um, because of his on-screen persona. And and what is that? You know, first he's this cowboy hero uh, who will use violence when necessary again to achieve order. Uh, violence in the in the Wild West was against Native Americans. And then we have him in the sands of Iwo Jima, Second World War against the Japanese, and then in the um, uh, the Alamo against the Mexicans, and then in the Green Berets against the Vietnamese, just over mm. and over again, this model of heroic white masculinity. Right. And that is so attractive to conservative Americans and conservative white evangelicals in the 1960s and 1970s. It resonates with this deeply racialized law and order politics. It resonated with evangelicals, especially Southern white evangelicals' resistance to civil rights legislation and defense of segregation. And, uh, you know, historically, it's just so clear. And what happens, though, is that evangelicals work hard to make race invisible. And, and so they advance this colorblindness, right? I think yeah. that, that Falwell was, uh, was tapping into there, you know, at least uh, later in his career. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to talk with many white evangelicals about race because they legitimately don't see themselves at all as racist. And yet the value system that they've embraced, this family values evangelicalism, law and order politics is just so deeply racialized and their visions of heroic masculinity and what it, it means to protect Christianity. Uh, it's, it's, it's very much a white racial ideal. Christian nationalism mm-hmm. itself, which is intertwined with this uh, idea of, of heroic Christian manhood, it, it only makes sense if you're a white Christian. Mm. Yeah. So uh, one follow up is in, in your <laughs> in your research, because I was I was sitting in that small group with Wild at Heart as a yeah. black male at Columbia University. Right. Yeah. Um, and I got the T-shirt when I was 17 years old from my youth pastor. With You had a Wild at Heart Jesus. T-shirt, Jonathan? No, no, no. I'm a, it's a worse T-shirt. It's the Lord's Gym T-shirt. Oh, yeah, Jesus yeah. under the, the cross doing the push-up, Classic. right? Classic. Yeah. And so, <laughs> terrible. I'm wondering, um, what do you think 
or have you discovered like what is attractive to to non-white men? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think that these tropes of masculinity certainly can be attractive to non-white men uh, and particularly, you know, those who are inhabiting predominantly white evangelical spaces, you know, as I, I, I assume you were at that time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, it's it's not that this uh, ideology or this this ideal of masculinity is that it only appeals to white men, but those who are producing this vision of masculinity mm-hmm. um, do intend for it to predominantly uh, apply to white men. And so when you look at how people of color and men of color are depicted uh, within these conversations, they are very, very rarely held up as warriors <laughs> and as you know mm-hmm. as men who need to use violence to achieve order not at all there it's quite the opposite uh, men of color are are depicted as threats as threats to order um, and so you know we can talk about immigrants and border security we can talk about Islam you know this uh, the the Islamophobia uh, we can talk about uh, you know, discussions of race and law enforcement of black lives matter and in all of these conversations that's where you can really see a distinction which isn't to say again in communities of color that they don't have um, their own uh, maybe conflicting understandings of masculinity and Christianity, uh, and I've heard from a number of people, especially I would say in, in uh, Hispanic uh, evangelical communities, there's quite a bit of overlap here, a little less so in African-American um, communities, although there's certainly issues of patriarchy there. But I think a real distinction within African-American communities um, who might um, promote this kind of patriarchal masculinity is it tends not to be linked to Christian nationalism. And, and so it looks quite different. It, it might look look similar kind of on an individual level, but it, it finds a very different expression when it comes to uh, politics or a broader mm. cultural identity. Cool. Thank you for, for drawing those lines. I really appreciate it. So, uh, Professor, I, I wanted to ask you about another kind of uh, angle of intersectionality here. Is I, I wrote an article recently, which you very kindly retweeted, um, about uh, you know my experience reading this book as a blind man and just having kind of inferred whenever I heard you know these sorts of teachings as a kid that none of this was for me and that I didn't fit in this this mold. And you you talked in your conclusion about another uh, physically disabled person who you spoke to who had kind of a similar view of. of John Wayne Christianity. Did you run into anything else that, that about kind of the intersection of disability and this vision of masculinity that you were writing about when you were doing your research? I did not, which which I think is interesting, right? I, yeah. I should have. I should have. I should have come across more of that, and I didn't. It was just through uh, one of the interviews that I did that that it just you know it was so clear when, once he explained his experience. I thought, of course, of course. Right. Um, but, but I will say that, so it was a man with a disability who could make that very clear to me. Uh, you know, he said he, he couldn't go out, uh, you know, rock climbing with the guys from church on the weekend (laughs) that just, Mm -hmm. uh, he physically couldn't do that. And so what place was there for him? And he felt like he was not sufficiently masculine and he felt like he was a second class Christian. And, and it was just so striking to me. And this this was somebody who had who had reached out to me and asked that I not share his name and, because he's mm. still in that community where mm. um, he's still struggling to um, uh, to kind of make peace in that world and yeah. and to find acceptance. And um, 
and but then I I realized, you know, when I as I continued to listen to men's voices, whether they were men with disabilities or not, so very very many men did not feel like they could achieve this vision of masculinity that was held out for them. So maybe a kind of parallel in terms of universal design, right? Understanding yeah. what, what you know, uh, for men with disability, absolutely not. But actually for so many men, right. this, uh, you know, there were men who were like, you know, actually, I would rather have gone to an art museum on a Saturday with guys from my church, but that was never an option. You know, that's yeah. almost a joke to even say that it could be. <laughs> right. Um, but, but so many men um, kind of felt like, Either, um, you know, the problem was all theirs, they internalized it. And so if they did, some of them left, not just evangelicalism, some of them left Christianity because right. this was the only Christianity they had known. Others, um, it, just so many poignant stories, others, you know, years of struggle to come to terms with this in their marriages, uh, others struggling with sec- uh, sexual orientation. Um, but there's also another group who could never achieve this level of um, uh, kind of warrior masculinity, but they didn't abandon the system. And these are the guys who kind of accepted that they were not the alpha males, but also accepted that they should then give their loyalty to the men in the room, the men in the church, the men in the country who were the alpha males. And so I think that's interesting to, to hold in tension as well. Some men walked away. Um, other men ended up just kind of giving their loyalty and supporting the men uh, who looked, you know, who modeled this aggressive, even crass leadership, who seemed, according to everything they had been taught, to, who seemed to have the God-given authority and call to lead. It, it strikes me, I mean, we've been talking about this a little bit, amongst the three of us that a lot of what people like you and obviously we're not doing any near anywhere near the academic heavy lifting that you're doing but in the kind of work that we're doing is um trying to you know clear the path of all this sort of uh, american political nonsense back to jesus and it is in in you're talking about people who are leaving the faith like yeah. it is in a roundabout way evangelistic <laughs> right <Yeah>. like <laughs> even even this just history work you're doing outlining where these ideas came from and sort yeah. of I, I i don't know i thought that's uh it's just an interesting aspect of the work that may not be immediately apparent but like like you said you're doing this because out of your conviction that you don't think that this is faithful to jesus yeah. right so i i exactly just appreciate that yeah, and it, it is interesting. Yeah, I, I wrote a piece in the Times just a couple of weeks back where yes. I, I talk about giving yes. a an interview with a, a, a Christian radio station, and I could tell that you know one of the hosts was was really enthusiastic, the other one much more reserved. And then after we went off the air, unfortunately, it was after I would have loved to have this conversation on air. He asked me, and he he was you know, trying really hard to be respectful, and and but he he essentially you know very kindly asked, um, you know why would you think that anybody would want to become a Christian after reading your book? And so he was deeply concerned about this evangelism aspect. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that, that that's just the impulse that so many evangelicals have had. And I had it myself. You know, I said I, I started this research more than 15 years uh, earlier, and, and I set it aside in part because I thought, you know, is this what I should do as a Christian scholar, kind of air our dirty laundry? Uh, <laughs> you know, because it, what I was uh. uncovering was deeply disturbing. Yeah. And, um, you know, I wasn't sure, is this mainstream? And if it's not, should I be shining this bright light on the darkest underbelly of American Christianity? Uh, I wasn't sure. I had other stuff going on. I set it aside and kind of meant to come back to it at some point. 
But what I realized is that that's exactly what evangelicals have been doing for generations. Mm -hmm. They have been controlling their own narrative. They have been putting the best face forward. They have been covering up scandal, covering up abuse in the interest of protecting the witness of the church, of the organization, of the leader. Um, And cumulatively, that has brought us to a terrible place. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that, yeah, one of the things that Jesus and John Wayne does is it just makes that all visible. Mm-hmm. And it has been incredible to me to see how many evangelicals have responded with in- with such humility to this very harsh narrative. And as you, as you can see from the cover of the book, the chapter titles, and, and the tone throughout, I did not pull any punches. I did not... No. Um, I did not, I did not try to woo evangelicals. I, uh, there's, there's so much, you know, evangelicals writing to evangelicals who, who, who do that. (laughs) I thought, no, I just, I need to tell this truth as powerfully as possible. And this is what it's going to look like. And yet that is exactly, I think why the book is, is so effective within evangelical communities, because they have shielded themselves from this truth for (laughs) decades and when they can see it, it it does. Uh, a lot of people talk about how it gives them hope because they can finally articulate what is wrong. Yes. And so there's something you can do. You can call it out. You can identify it, and then you can work to undo it. And so um, it's it's uh, you know beyond what I had hoped in terms of what the book could do. I frankly didn't think the book would change anything. It was all so deeply embedded. I just wanted to testify. I want to just hold this out and say, this is, this is true. And that's all, all I thought I could accomplish. And so to see some people really taking it to heart has been incredibly encouraging. And if I could just ask, um, and this is a fairly personal question, so feel free to answer this however you, you feel comfortable, but in light of, of what you just shared, I, I had a professor in college who shared at one point about how our our testimony should actually be why we're choosing to still follow Christ today. Like why today mm-hmm. do I still choose to to worship him? And so for you, again, as, as a, a person doing this research and, and digging into all of this darkness, why, why do you still choose to follow Christ despite mm-hmm. all of this ugliness that you unmask? And I agree that it's liberation work that you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. I agree that there's so much good that comes of this, but, but for you personally, why, why do you still choose to, to follow Christ? Yeah. So the Christ that I choose to follow, the Christ that I'm drawn to, I should say, is is absolutely not the Jesus of Jesus and John Wayne. Right? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so, so you know, and I think that that really helped me to see the the stark contrast and and to really start, you know, uh, I should say the second part of the um, or, or the first part of the, the the subtitle, the corrupted of faith part. You know that that is not a historical claim. Um, and I, I want to be honest yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, because it's a work of history. This is actually written for secular audiences. Uh, this book. I went with a secular publisher, and um, 
I um, I was actually surprised that my publisher went with that part of the subtitle because it's not a historical claim. Um, it makes no sense historically. That how can you corrupt a faith? The faith is however it finds expression in any given you know historical moment. Um, that is my intervention as a Christian uh, and as somebody who is speaking to evangelicals on their own terms. You know, evangelicals who claim to be Bible believing Christians. Uh, that's where I wanted to say, okay, let's talk about that. Let's let's look at at uh, the scriptures. Let's look at the teachings of Christ. Let's look at the, you know, what it means to follow Christ. And then let's, let's look at this history. And, mm-hmm. and so that really is, is my uh, kind of direct intervention. But, um, but no, my, my faith has always uh, kind of been, um, uh, it, it's, it's never looked like this. Even as I've bumped up against this a lot, certainly patriarchal teachings in my own upbringing, uh, certainly, uh, you know, kind of racial barriers as a white Christian, um, as I, I could, I could see how I had been, uh, also constrained by my own understanding of whiteness and, uh, white mm-hmm. Christianity. Um, but I, uh, you know, I just, I find the gospel ultimately to be liberating and to be under, cutting these, um, you know, I guess the, the colonized power structures that, that um, I've, I've, came, I've come to identify. And, uh, you know, that's the, the Jesus that I place my hope in. Uh, you know, less talking about belief. You know, I believe this. I know this to be true. This is a doctrine I'm going to defend to the death. It's this is the Christ that I place my hope in. Mm. And that, you know, it, it's a matter of ultimately, of, I guess it's, it's just what I believe to be true and what I hope to be true. Unfortunately, I found a, a an incredible church here, a local church. I think that's really important. It's it's um, it can be very difficult to um, to find a church that isn't uh, particularly in white Christian spaces. I should qualify that that isn't captive to these um, um, ideologies. And I happen to have one that is is a remarkable space, um, which is diverse and. Um, uh, liturgical and um, and beautiful, and so I think that sustains my faith as well. Yeah, well, so Professor, you're to to pivot a little bit, um, and thank you so much again for for what you just shared. You're you're working on a new book yes. that you describe on Twitter as Jesus and John Wayne, but for the girls, <laughs> and the title, great title, is Live, Laugh, Love, I and laugh every you wrote. Time. <laughs> yeah, so do we, I. <laughs> Love the title. Um, You wrote a lot in Jesus and John Wayne about the kind of femininity needed to uphold the patriarchal vision of evangelical manhood. So is this book expanding on those ideas or is this research taking you in some other different directions? It's you know it's both expanding and and veering off into new directions. So mm-hmm. yes, I'm I'm so excited about this next project. I'm working on it this summer with a research team, and it it is so much fun. But um, <laughs> I mean, essentially, Jesus and John Wayne. We have a chapter on evangelical femininity, right? God's gift to man, and it goes back to the 1970s. And we look at Maribel Morgan and Elizabeth Elliot, and then also Phyllis Schlafly, and mm-hmm. sets up this this you know kind of sweet, submissive, uh, sexualized uh, femininity that does prop up this militant 
Christian masculinity. Because if you don't have women buying into this, it, 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 it won't be sustained. So uh, this isn't just a book about men at all. It's about women who also prop up this ideal of masculinity. Um, but then through over the course of the book, uh, you, you might notice that uh, the attention to femininity kind of trails off. And that was a necessity because there was just so much packed into this book. And the uh, the kind of basics hold steady, emphasis on femininity, sexual object- objectification, um, submission, and um, you know, kind of uh, 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 beauty and and so on and domesticity right those 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 but but they morph what they how they find expression kind of changes with each decade and so i knew i just couldn't give that justice and also trace the main uh strand of the book evangelical masculinity and then also intertwined with american politics and so i had to kind of let that go at a certain point and just you know a nod here or there and so i'm i'm excited to have the opportunity now to uh to give that justice and to describe exactly how evangelical femininity morphs um, through uh, the last half century or more and um, how it, I guess um, I won't give too much away, but I'll say that it um, it definitely engages economics more um, um, uh, seriously uh, more mm-hmm. with a much greater depth than I was able to do in Jesus and John Wayne. That was also one of my regrets. I wish I could have done more. Um, I was limited by space and time. So I'm making up for that in Live, Laugh, Love. And mm-hmm. um, also will be uh, kind of uh, showing this. It won't just be on evangelical uh, femininity. It will be more on a kind of generic white Christian womanhood, which I think is an interesting and important shift uh, to make and which um, – is something I'll be exploring. So the connections between religious and secular, still a lot of material culture in there and a lot of really um, fun findings from the archives and uh, from interviews and such. Hmm. Wow. Awesome. I can't wait to get my hands on this book. Yeah. So excited. So excited. We're working. We're working on it. I say we, as in my three researchers are working on it right now while I'm doing this interview. So <laughs> we'll thank them nice. for us. Yes, I will. Yeah, well, Professor Dumais, thank you so much again for joining us. This has been such such an incredible conversation. We really appreciate it. And be, before we let you go, um, is there anything that you would like to plug? Where can folks find you on social media? Sure. I have a website, kristendumais.com. Dumais is spelled D-U-M-E-Z. And I'm on Twitter all the time, at K.K. Dumais. So that's at K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And I also have a Facebook author page, at K.K. Dumais. So you can find me any of those spaces. And um, also, yeah, the the book is just out in paperback. So it's a lot cheaper, which is nice. And uh, uh, it, it should be widely available. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again for, for your time and for just this phenomenal work that you've put out into the world. We're just so grateful. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you all are doing too. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our blog at ktfpress.com. Follow us on social media at KTF Press on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Also, you can write to us at shakethedust.com at ktfpress.com with questions written or recorded as a voice memo. And maybe something you send in will show up on a future episode. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra and our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you next week. When we arrive at-
I'm Susie Lahoud here with, uh, sorry. With who? Did you forget my name again? I uh, know. I'm just about to blend your names in a weird way. I don't know. It's, I'm not Sonathan Waltstra. Uh, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs>